And now, deep thoughts. are listening to Deep Thoughts, where every episode explores one aspect of the Christian faith a little more deeply. I'm your host, Matt Schantz, and I am fascinated by Dr. Raphael Samuel's story. From his upbringing during apartheid in South Africa, to his career as an anesthesiologist, his itinerant work as an Apologetics Canada speaker, and his passion for explaining the coherence of Christianity. We get into all of it. So now, here's my deep conversation with Dr. Raphael Samuel. Well, hi, Dr. Samuel. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Hi. Hi, Matt. Great to, great to be here, and thank you for the opportunity. Uh, uh, we miss BC. We were in BC for... Uh, the last five years, and uh, now we're in Ontario. Well, it seems like the little I know of you, it seems like you've lived a lot of places, and uh, I find what I know of you uh, pretty fascinating. So do you mind just giving us a little exploration of uh, your life, what, what eventually led you to Canada, maybe a couple of the career paths you've taken, and, uh, and your current interest in, uh, in apologetics? Sure. Uh, well, I was uh, born and grew up in Durban in South Africa, which is uh, Durban's on the east coast of South Africa. And uh, the strange thing about it is that I grew up in a completely Indian community. It was uh, Indian culturally and demographically. Uh, but the strange and the odd thing about this was this was in the heart of Africa. Uh, and that was because uh, apartheid was at its peak and uh, the races were kept completely separate. Um, and so in my teenage years, I saw the fall of apartheid and I had the privilege of going to a, a Catholic multiracial school. I was born in a Christian home. And uh, uh, thereafter I went to university and uh, medical school. And it was quite an experience uh, again in medical school to be exposed to just uh, a real smuggler's board of uh, worldviews and choices. And uh, I began to eat at the table of relativism, to, to be honest, and um, just really explore other concepts, other ideas, and uh, to compromise a lot. But I just thank, the, uh, thank God that his hand was upon me. Um, one of my favorite quotes is from John Piper, um, God wields uh, his sovereign power in all things to preserve himself as my greatest treasure. And that's what he really did. Yeah. And he did that by ultimately uh, my meeting my future wife, who uh, was a fellow medical student. And uh, we started courting at the end of medical school. And she was a radical Oh, she is a radical evangelical Christian. <laughs> and here I was the cool compromising Christian. And that was a really painful experience for me. The only thing we thought about was Christianity. And gradually the mental furniture in my brain had to be rearranged 
and I had to evict a lot of junk out. And then I eventually embraced the gospel of grace, uh, mm. which absolutely bowled me over, smitten, could not believe that God could be so graceful, so merciful. And I was all heart in, heart into the gospel of grace. And then gradually, as I walked further along my Christian path, I noticed that there were questions and these questions didn't want to go away. And so my heart was fully in, but my mind was lagging behind. And that's when I got reading and, and listening to apologetics. And what I discovered really shocked me. The shocking thing was that I discovered that Christianity was, was good and that Christianity was true, not because it was good, it was good because it was true, that it was logical, that it was beautiful, that it was sweet to the soul. Uh, and that didn't make it true because it was true. It was logical, coherent, and sweet to the soul. And uh, that for me was the real transforming moment, uh, the second transforming moment when my mind uh, walked that eight inches towards my heart and I was able to love the Lord as uh, Mark 12, 30 says, with all my mind, with all my soul, with all my strength and uh, with all my heart in complete unison. That's incredible. So, I mean, you're, you're in medical school, you've got a sharp mind. Um, were you, uh, was there was was there a particular conflict in your mind about uh, was it when you were captured by the gospel and smitten by it as you say was there a real understanding of the coherency of Christianity um, was that light bulb coming on um, what brought you to the gospel or were you brought to the gospel and then wrestling these questions. I was, How, I was brought to the gospel. I had an awareness okay. of the of the gospel of uh, salvation, but not completely about salvation through grace by faith. Mm. Um, that was the real uh, thing that struck me, and just the the beauty of the cross, uh, the historicity of the cross. Uh, that moment in history when when time basically stood still. And you get justice meeting uh, mercy, holiness meeting um, holiness meeting um, mercy um, and and grace. You know, no other point in the history of of the world uh, where you get concepts like justice, mercy, grace, goodness, love displayed rather than on the cross of Calvary. And that for me just blew me away that I'm a sinner saved by grace. The questions came after that. Yes, okay. uh, gradual. Initially you try and suppress it. You read through difficult passages of the Bible more fast. And, um, <laughs> but, but they don't, especially if you have an inquiring mind, they don't really go away. And mm. I realized that if you love any worldview, whether it's atheism, Christianity, um, uh, Hinduism, if you love any worldview more than the truth, you end up loving an illusion. Your worldview has to stand the test of truth. It has to be testable. 
why is it why is it do you think that we're we're you know you breeze by the the the, the more difficult texts because you don't want to wrestle is it is it our identities so wrapped up with the worldview that that uh, too much would crumble down to really question it? Yeah, well, I think that you know they every worldview has questions. Um, yes. A worldview is the way we we look at those fundamental questions in life, man's existential questions: Where have I come from? Where do I? Where am I heading? Um, mm. And to be certain about that involves a lot of mental work. It involves a lot of research. And there are questions in the Bible, there are difficult questions uh, about difficult passages. And when you, when you just assume that um, everything has a specific meaning, you know, or you don't want to go deeper and, and approach that, those meanings, you just try and ignore it. Uh, but that caught up, caught up to me, and that's why I went into apologetics, and I discovered that Christianity is actually true, and that is quite a shocking statement. Uh, yeah. It it may be um, a bit arrogant for me to say that, but my challenge is that we live in a in a world that um, has a whole choice of uh, beliefs and worldviews and they all can't be true logic demands that they they all can't be true and so you have to do the research you have to spend that time exploring truth and and decide for yourself and it has to be an educated decision Hosea 4 6 says my people perish from lack of knowledge mm. and that really that really struck me Isaiah as well says somewhere that my people go into exile because of a lack of knowledge. Well, you bring, <clears throat> you bring up a really interesting point there about uh, they logically cannot all be true. Um, I mean, a really popular um, viewpoint today is, well, that's not nice. Like, <laughs> I'm saying that maybe a little too crassly, but this idea that like it is arrogant for you to say that Christianity is true. Why can't you say that they're all true? And as you point out, um, logically, that cannot be the case. Can you expand on that a little bit more? Give some examples of, of how all faiths cannot lead to the same God? Well, I'm not saying that there's no truth or elements of truth in, in all yep. faith. That comes from shared common grace. Yep. Uh, God has revealed and his grace in, in the whole world. What I'm saying is that the basic tenets of all the religions can be true. If you take atheism and Christianity, atheism at its heart says there's no God. And Christianity says there is a God. Well, there's a basic law of logic called the law of non-contradiction. And then the second law of logic is the law of the excluded middle. So it's either that there is a God or there is no God. Um, if you look at uh, Hinduism, and I grew up basically in as a, as a minority group in a Hindu and Muslim culture, um, Hinduism says that um, you know death is not the end; it's just uh, you're going to be reborn again into uh, another form or as another human in reincarnation. 
Whereas right. the the three uh, monotheistic religions, Judaism, Islam, and and Christianity, say that you know after the end comes judgment. So those are mutually exclusive ideas, um, mm. and right. you know uh, we use the laws of logic every day. Uh, you know when we cross the road, it's either us or the bus. That's why we look <laughs> left or right. And I love what Avicenna. Um, the ancient Islamic uh, scholar in, I think it was the 12th century, uh, I think he said this, he said, whoever does not believe in the law of non-contradiction should be beaten and burnt until he decides that to be beaten is not, to, is not the same as not to be beaten. To be burnt is not the same as not to be burnt. That's a bit harsh, but it gets the <laughs> yeah, point. I was going to say, I got dark real quick there. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's, that's very helpful. I think that, that's, that's right. Just, just to think about that logically, um, yeah, all these core tenets of the faith, not all, but a lot of them are, are like, truly contradict one another. Uh, which which leaves us in this place of well they cannot all be true. Um, I want to talk to you just with that medical background you have. You were an anesthesiologist, or are you still practicing? I am or? an anesthesiologist. Yes, that's my day job. This is my this is what I do on the side, but primarily wow. I'm an anesthesiologist. Yes, a lot of spine is it a lot of spine work. Is that what happens? A lot of. Sorry, I, Don't I you stick a needle in people's spine? Is that part of the job? Yes, that's part of that's part of the job. <laughs> Finals and epidurals, that's called your yeah, yeah. yeah, that's uh that's part of the job. It's so, bringing me back. It's yeah. bringing me back to the birth of my sons and uh some some very intense right. moments. So, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, uh, so this year, is, uh, my wife and I celebrate uh, 20 years since graduating as a as a doctor. So it's been quite a journey. Good for you. How are uh, how are how is your how is your hospital? How's your staff these days? I hear people are feeling pretty taxed. Yeah, it's been it's been quite rough. Uh, we've had lots of slowdowns and. Uh, I just feel for for the people of of Canada who've had surgeries cancelled. You know, I'm actively involved in in the whole operating room and in the performance of surgeries, and it's it's been quite taxful. And we've seen it on the faces of patients, especially with regards to cancelled surgeries. So we hope we can mm. just clear those, that backlog. Yeah, I hope. Uh... Yeah, I hope we're at the tail end of something that can lead to a little bit more normalcy. But we are very thankful for uh, for our frontline workers. That's for sure. Um, okay, I have uh, I have a couple silly questions for you, and then I want to get back to uh, to a, to a real question. But one is, why are there so many South African doctors in Canada? It's like I I, I know a handful. What's the <laughs> What's the South Africa Canada connection? You guys know how to turn out doctors. I tell you. Yeah, well, uh, Canada is a beautiful country. Uh, what can we say? It's yeah, it's beautiful, so. beautiful culture and uh, beautiful people, beautiful weather. You know, uh, you can go and get frozen outside in a couple yeah. seconds, so you can't really complain about that. <laughs> 
But uh, yeah, I think uh, there's a huge diaspora of South African doctors throughout the world, especially in Australia, New Zealand, the United Kingdom. My wife and I spent some time in the United Kingdom as well. We actually, quite early in our marriage, we helped uh, plant a church in Edinburgh. So that was interesting. We were just part of the peripheral team. Cool. But it was a phenomenal experience, and we got to encounter just how hard the ground was in Europe, yeah. trying to, yeah. to reach people for the gospel. And I think that's what gave us a flavor for for mission and for um, apologetics in the future, because apologetics involves a lot of pre-evangelization. You got to, mm. you know, do a lot of work before you can get to the gospel. Uh, clear a lot of debris just before you you start speaking about the gospel of grace because people don't believe in God. People assume that God is a myth, that science has made God a myth, and that is such a complete myth, um, yeah. completely. But that well, seems. I got to- a, I, I've got another uh, softball question for you in a little bit, but now you've already brought up science, so. Um, <clears throat> You have this. You have this medical background, um, a sharp mind in in terms of sciences and medicine. Um, but there is this this popular opinion that look, I'm a person of science, not faith. I I, I believe in science, not Christianity. Or science has shown Christianity wanting. Um, and what do you make of that uh, when those are pitted against each other like that? Um, I know historically, actually, a lot of what we know about science and some of the early fathers of of uh, certain scientific methods and all sorts of things were actually God-fearing, you know, Bible-believing Christians. Um, but what would you say to that really kind of popular and I think growing um, belief that, that these two things, Christianity or faith in general and science, are actually opposed to each other? Well, there are, there's different ways to approach that. But first, I'd just like to say that that is so incorrect. And that is not what the evidence says. You see, you get scientific data, which is neutral. And scientists with their own individual worldviews look at that data. And they may approach it from an atheistic uh, worldview, which is materialism or naturalism, or they may approach it from a nat- uh, atheistic worldview. And when you look at the data from a atheistic worldview, you automatically exclude God from mm-hmm. the uh, as an explanation for the data. But the problem is that the God hypothesis keeps coming back. And we see that in the latest scientific evidence. So has science made God a myth? The answer is no. And the reasons for that is firstly, um, uh, threefold. You look at the history of science in Western Europe, you look at the difference between agent and agency. And uh, Professor John Lennox has really done a lot of work on that. And uh, you look at the actual scientific data uh, the discoveries of science, and that actually shows the existence of God. So if I had to touch on 
you know, the rise of modern science in Christian Europe, um, you've got to ask yourself, why did it actually arise in Christian Europe? And historians of science have come to the conclusion uh, because the, the scientists believed in the two books of Revelation. They, they believed in the book of general revelation and the book of special revelation. The two books of revelation was the, the book of special revelation, which was the, the Bible, the book of scriptures, but also nature. And uh, I like to look at it as um, scripture is, is the queen of revelation and science is her handmaiden. And I get that from amalgamation of, of, the, of the church fathers. So what they did when they looked at the book of nature, they noticed order and comprehensibility. Um, C.S. Lewis says really well, and he says, men became scientific because they, um, uh, they expected law in nature. And the reason why they expected law in nature is because they knew of a lawgiver. Albert Einstein actually says the most incomprehensible thing about science, uh, about the universe, actually, is that it is comprehensible. Uh, the fact that you can perform experiments, repeated the same experiments over and over again, and get the same results suggests order. Um, and then there's the, the, the difference between agent and agency. We are taught in the academy that you have to pick one. You pick the agent or you pick the agency. Uh, you pick God or you pick science. You pick the mechanic or you pick the mechanism. It's like saying, since I discovered how a light bulb works with the mechanism of electricity and light energy, that means Thomas Edison is an illusion. Um, but you actually needed both for the first light bulb. You needed Thomas Edison and the principles of electricity and uh, light energy. It's like saying that, uh, uh, like a bowler, um, when he bowls at the 10 pin bowling rink, he sets the ball in motion. So we understand the Newton's law of motion as the ball goes and crashes into the, uh, the pins. But uh, you telling me to choose between the law of motion and the bowler, and God is no more redundant uh, uh, when it comes to science in the universe uh, compared to uh, Thomas Edison is to the light bulb or the, the bowler is to the bowl. And then lastly, you get this remarkable uh, recent scientific discoveries, um, particularly of the last century, that have just blown uh, blown us away. Uh, the first scientific discovery, uh, uh, and this is the general consensus amongst all scientists, is number one, the universe has a beginning. And secondly, uh, the universe um, had a beginning from nothing. Now, uh, we know this from, from various facts, um, four facts, Five facts, actually, the expanding universe, which was discovered from the redshift by Edwin Hubble. Then you get um, uh, the Catholic priest and astronomer, Georges uh, Lemaitre, and he proposed the Big Bang Theory, uh, which is globally accepted now among scientists. 
which basically means that the universe was expanding in all directions equally from an explosive singular event. And this was uh, also independently, Albert Einstein worked on the cosmological uh, constant with his general theory of relativity. Um, and uh, that proposed the beginning, but uh, the real, and, and then you get the second law of thermodynamics, um, which says that all the uh, usable energy in the universe is, is wearing down. But the real death knell to the, uh, to the steady state theory of the universe that the universe was eternal came when the actual background microwave radiation of the Big Bang was discovered. And there was a guy who discovered it, Arno Penzias with Robert uh, Wilson. And when they discovered this background uh, radiation, that was really the end uh, that the universe was eternal. And he said something really fascinating. He said, um, I, uh, what did he say now? He said, uh, the best data that we have is uh, nothing more than uh, I would have known had I just had the Bible. Uh, so the Bible predicted uh, exactly uh, what the best data holds. And there was another, another uh, author, um, a scientist who worked for uh, NASA, Robert uh, Jaystrom, and he said uh, the, the data actually is like for the scientists who have put their faith in, in reason, like a bad dream. They have scaled the mountain of ignorance. They have, uh, we're about to conquer uh, the highest peak and as they pull themselves over the rock, they are met by a group of theologians who have been sitting there for centuries. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I love so that. The, the fact that the universe has a beginning implies uh, that there must be a cause for the universe. And so yeah. you're basically left with two choices with that. Uh, with that. You, you either can decide that uh, the first words of the Bible, Genesis 1.1, in the beginning was God. Or you can uh, say, as Terry Pratchett said, uh, in the beginning was nothing, and that nothing exploded. So those yeah. are basically the two, yeah. uh, two choices to that. And they're, they're, they're more, uh, I'm not sure whether we have time, but you know, dealing with a fine-tuned universe, right, and that brings right. us to the um, I'm not sure whether you want me to go into that. No, they, uh, I, I love I love where you've brought us there because um, it it does leave us with this um, obvious reality that both require a level of faith, right? And I, I've heard it said that it actually requires more faith um, to believe that something came from nothing um, than it does to believe in. Um, a creator God. And so I, it's just helpful because sometimes there's this notion that I hear of, you know, I believe in science is like, it requires no faith, but that that's actually not true. When you boil it all down, you're still left having to um, take a leap of faith that <clears throat> it's caused from nothing or it's caused from uh, a, a creator. So... Yeah, actually, you know, this argument revived an ancient argument which William Clay, uh, Craig has perfected called the Kalam cosmological argument. And 
the two premises are, are really straightforward. Uh, it states, uh, premise one states, um, everything that has a beginning must have a cause. Premise two states, the universe had a beginning. And the conclusion is because uh, the universe has a beginning, the universe must have a cause. And that is sort of an ironclad argument. We know premise one actually is true yeah. uh, because something does not emerge from nothing. Um, you know, the, the faith of the, the atheists when looking at that, they are implying that something has emerged from nothing, which has never been observed. Uh, it's unscientific. I mean, we don't observe cows or cars just popping out from nothing. And to, to call it fate, it's actually, the fate is actually worse than believing in magic. Because mm. when you have magic, uh, at least you have a magician. When the magician pulls out something from a hat, at least you have a hat and you have the magician. But in terms of, you know, pure miracles, I think uh, the most breathtaking argument for me is the teleological argument yeah. uh, where the universe has been fine-tuned for life mm -hmm. because That's the right. odds of that happening is just remarkable. It's just breathtaking. Yes. Uh, basically, you know, when we think of the Big Bang, we think of, uh, of a chaotic explosion, but that's not really what science has shown us about the, the Big Bang. It was a carefully controlled, fine-tuned expansion event. And as within the first couple of microseconds of the Big Bang, uh, all the fundamental laws and constants of physics had to be assigned values. Mm -hmm. And for example, if we had got one of those values wrong, or if one of those values had been incorrect, the universe would not support life. And, you know, for an example, you take the cosmological constant, it is fine-tuned to one part in one one part in 10 to the power 120. So that's 10 with 120 zeros after that. That's just one of the parameters. And you get the strong nuclear force, weak nuclear force, gravitational constant. So how I like to look at this is, um, like the old radios that we had in the past. And I'm sure our young video, uh, young listeners will not be aware of this. <laughs> we have to fine tune yes. those old radio stations, you know, to get the best crystal clear sound. That's right. But if you had to take a measuring tape and measure a hundred and, um, no, let's just say 10 to the power 120 issue, uh, inches. So that's uh, 10 with 120 zeros after that. That's how long your, your radio scale is. And at the, the minute of the Big Bang, that dial is spinning. And it only has one inch, one correct inch on that entire scale to land on. And if it lands on any inch on either side of that one, you don't have a life-sustaining universe. But what's worse is that you've got several of these radio dials spinning at the same time. 
Uh, and and that is that's breathtaking. Um, I mean, Eric Metaxas in in his article to the uh, World, uh, Wall Street Journal, he said the greatest miracle of all time. It's a historical miracle because time equals zero at the time of this miracle. Hmm. It's a scientific. It's a miracle that we can actually prove because it's scientific based. And. Uh, the greatest miracle of all time is the universe without any close seconds. And it points for all the brightness of all the stars in the universe to something, to someone beyond itself. That's right. Fine tuning implies a fine tuner. Yeah, that's great. You, uh, towards the end there, you started combining the two subjects that I was the worst at, math and science. I guess that's physics, <laughs> right? But, uh, but yeah. that, that is so, so helpful. Uh, thank you. Um, I want to jump back a little bit to uh, you growing up in South Africa in a little Indian colony. I find that fascinating. People must be confused by your accent all the time when they hear that you're from South Africa. <laughs> yeah, so uh, it's 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 really confusing, and I find yeah. that in in a in a a day and age where identity is so important, hmm. you know, people are pushing the concept of identity. You know, I grew up. I was born into an Indian community ethnically, culturally Indian, but I grew up as an African. Uh, I now live in, in, in North America. So you could call me an Indian African America and you'd be correct. But the most important thing about my identity is that I'm a, I'm a sinner saved by grace. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I'm a citizen of a different kingdom. And that for me, I don't find my identity in my ethnicity, in my, uh, in where I was born and where I live. My mm. identity is in Christ. I'm a citizen of a completely different world. Uh, and I've been bought at a price. Mm. And, you know, we were, we were speaking about the concept of, of truth. And I really believe that truth has a consequence. You know, I have come to the understanding that Christianity is true. And if it is true, that comes with a responsibility on my part. Um, you know, the mm. words of Isaac Watts in that beautiful hymn, when I survey the wondrous cross, it ends by saying, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my heart, my all. And... I know now that the love that Jesus displayed on the cross was so amazing and so divine. And it literally demands my heart, my life, my all. Uh, so there's no time or place for lukewarmness. There's no time or place for, for being a nominal Christian. You must, uh, you must really fascinate your, uh, your, your coworkers at the hospital. I can imagine you you guys are, you know, you're just around some other staff and you're just getting into these deep, deep discussions. What do they make of you? Actually, you know, uh, it's, it's quite sad that, uh, you know, we're not allowed to talk about these, these issues at work. Um, hmm. and, and that's why I'm actually trying to, to do this, um, you know, outside of work. Uh, because because of this 
we live in this post-Christian culture and, you know, you're not allowed to uh, talk about religion or faith. Religion and faith is seen as divisive. Right. So it's it's a real challenge, you know, in in the medical field. When when I started work as a doctor, um, in my first year, uh, I was an intern, and I was really disillusioned after my my first year as a doctor. And and then, unknowingly, my wife decided to that we should go and work at a mission hospital in rural Africa. And this was deep, dark Africa. This is where even, you know, uh, the cows were dehydrated. That's how bad the place was. Mm. And uh, so we spent our next year, it was called community service because every doctor in in South Africa had to spend that year uh, of community service working somewhere uh, before they went on to train further. And so we worked in that mission hospital and I encountered such phenomenal Christian doctors, doctors that were working there for more than 20 years who had committed them their lives and their work uh, to serving the poorest of the poor. And that really changed me and transformed me. And then when I went further on to study uh, in anesthesiology, it became it has become increasingly more difficult to to speak about God in wow. in the the public workplace, and you know you can't speak to your patients about about that. Otherwise, you just get fired. Uh, so, yeah, but you you do have these interesting conversations with colleagues. Um, and from from my medical career, what I've learned is that uh, there's such a beauty to the body. Uh, there's a beauty to the the engineering uh, of the body, the human body. It's it's fearfully and wonderfully made, um, and that I've studied that as part of uh, my medical career, as part of anesthesiology. But there's also brokenness to the body, mm-hmm. uh, and that brokenness demands uh, an explanation and a solution. And I genuinely believe that Jesus is the the answer to that, uh, that brokenness. Oh, that's beautiful. All right. Well, I want, I have two more subjects I want to tackle with you. And so we're going to have to do like rapid fire here because, uh, I I think both subjects matter a lot. Um, but we'll just have to scratch the surface. So I think it's fascinating, um, that you lived in South Africa during the time of the apartheid. Um, and you talk about identity as well, and um, people make so much of their identity in our day and age. And one of the things that that people in the West, at least, would certainly feel strongly about is apartheid is wrong, right? That 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 racism, that systemic racism in that country is just so wrong. And and so that's a that's a conversation of morality. Um, and it's interesting because really, no matter what you believe. Uh, which religious faith you have. Atheism is really its own faith uh, as well. But there's sort of this general consensus um, that racism is wrong. Um, What is it about Christianity that actually um, is coherent to you from a morality perspective? 
Well, so you got to step back and ask yourself, where do you get morality from? Mm-hmm. And that for me is a neglected argument. And you've got you've to stop and ask and say, is morality objective? Is there an extrinsic uh, morality that's higher than just the laws of the, of the nation, higher than the laws of the individual? And that's, that's explained best by the moral argument uh, for the existence of God, actually. And uh, the premise one there says that if, uh, if there is no God, then no objective morality exists. Right. Premise two states there is objective morality. Uh, and the conclusion that we get from that, because there's objective morality, God exists. Yes. And I think we, we're really facing now uh, what we call moral relativism, which is a real smorgasbord, a buffet of, uh, of moral choices, but we've got to stop and ask ourselves, where do we get our moral standard from? Uh, and you, you face with three options. You either get it from the culture or from your nation, or you get it from yourself, uh, or maybe it's a byproduct of evolution, or uh, there is an extrinsic moral uh, standard that's outside of yourself and outside of the nation. And I grew up in apartheid South Africa, and uh, because of my color, I was banned from the best of everything, the best of the beaches, the best of the benches, benches the best of uh, buses. You know, uh, we, were, um, we grew up completely separately from, uh, 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 from, from the other, other race groups uh, because of the color of our skin. And I have no legitimate objection against that if I say that uh, culturally morality uh, comes from my culture, comes from my country. Uh, there must be a higher law than that. And that emerged in especially the, the Nuremberg trials. Uh, the, German, um, the German defendants kept using this term called Befehl ist Befehl. An order is an order. They were only following orders, and that became known as the Nuremberg defense. And people stopped, and they actually thought, you were following the law of your land, you are following the law of uh, your country, but is there no higher law? And the minute you ask yourself that question, even if there's one higher law, even if you say there's, there's no racism, and that's objective, it implies a, a moral lawgiver. There can be no moral law unless there's a moral lawgiver. That's fantastic! Wow, man, what a time! It, it feel it feels really strange to me to be chatting with you. You seem so young, and that there was that you lived in a time. You know, you lived out. I can't go to these beaches. Go on these buses. Uh, it's really incredible, and. Uh, and we have to ask ourselves, what it, why is there a higher law? Where does that come from? Because that law of the land is different than ours. And so is our society more superior? We'd also say, no, it's not more. You know, it's such an interesting yeah. thing. And so I have one more that I want to touch on. I wish we could go longer on that one, but, but let's, let's do one more. And that's the idea of uh, Christianity's coherence historically. Um, it's really, really difficult 
to find uh, a historian worth his salt who would say that Jesus wasn't a real Jesus of Nazareth wasn't a real man who who walked on this earth uh, two thousand years ago, right? That the evidence is very strong for that. But a lot of people will, will find this large gap between, okay, Jesus was a real man, but Christianity says he's God. He's the son of God. He was born of a virgin. He died on a Roman cross. There's a lot of evidence for that. But then he rose again from the grave and ascended to heaven. And we think, okay, okay that's, that's where I object. So how, how is it not fairy tale to look at... Um, the historicity of Jesus and say, yeah, Christianity stands on a historic historical grounds. I, uh, before we get there, I just want to backtrack just, uh, just for a, a minute or so. The arguments that I've mentioned beforehand in our discussion, you know, uh, doesn't show that Christianity is true. Uh, what it shows is that there is a God. Uh, he is the uncaused cause of the universe. He is timeless because he is outside of time and he created time. He's outside of matter and space uh, because he created matter and space. So pantheism falls away. God is not part of the universe. God could never have been part of the universe. He had to be outside of the universe to create the universe. He's also infinitely holy because he's the author of the moral law. Mm -hmm. But this could apply to Judaism, Christianity, or Islam. And where the evidence points strongly for Christianity is in the historicity of Jesus, and particularly the historicity of uh, the evidence for the resurrection. Um, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the coup de grace. Uh, yes. Of, of all arguments. If Jesus rose from the dead, game over, that's, that's just history. Uh, everything that Jesus said has to be true uh, thereafter because dead men stay dead even in ancient times. And the remarkable thing about this is that we have unbelievable historical evidence for uh, the resurrection of Jesus. Um, and that's just one part of the historicity of, yeah. of Christianity. But I'll just touch very briefly on, on the evidence for the uh, his, historical um, resurrection of Jesus. And scientists, are, uh, sorry, historians, New Testament historians, New Testament scholars across the board, whether they're agnostic, Jewish, atheists or theists, they agree on four or five fundamental historical facts. One, Jesus Christ died a shameful death at the hands of Pontius Pilate's um, Roman crucifixion. Two, um, the tomb was empty after a few days. Three, his disciples or his followers believed that they had appearances of him post-mortem. Four, you have the phenomenal and inexplicable rise of Christianity. Now, this is where logic just comes into play here. They all agree on these four facts, but these facts need to be explained. 
And we don't have time to go through the alternative um, hypotheses such as hallucination hypotheses or the mm-hmm. uh, stealing of the body, but you just put it together and you just even take two of those facts and try and explain that. Jesus died a shameful death. One fact, uh, the death of crucifixion is the most shameful death, both to the Romans because it was reserved for a slave and to for the Jew, because cursed is the one who hangs on a tree. And then uh, you, you say that his disciples go and become the greatest missionary organization overnight and they give their lives uh, for what they believe. Uh, That doesn't make sense. So, you know, that's just a taste of, of some of the evidence for the historicity, uh, historicity of Jesus. Then you get the New Testament documents, and uh, there's another myth that's uh, that's circulating that the New Testament documents have been corrupted, and the New Testament documents are just myths. But um, historians agree that they are the best attested historical documents of ancient time. You might as well throw away everything you know about Caesar, about the Gaelic Wars, about Homer. Uh, if you're going to reject the New Testament documents, we have more copies uh, about of the, the New Testament documents than any of the uh, above ancient sources. They are closer uh, to the time of composition than any of them, uh, closer than more than a thousand years of its nearest competitor. Uh, the John Ryland's papyrus from, from the Gospel of of John that dates within 25 to 50 years uh, from the composition of the book of John. Um, and then thankfully, because of the science of textual criticism, we know that the New Testament documents are 99% um, uncorrupted and the same as the original autographs. And then you face with the fact that Jesus is a historical figure the Gospels frame him in, in history. I mean, he was he was born in the uh, in the time of uh, Caesar Augustus, uh, when Quirinius was governor of of, of Caesar of uh, Syria. That's the historical period. At one point, you know, he dies. He dies at the time when Herod, I think it was Antipas, is in in Rome. Pontius Pilate, another historical figure, uh, Tiberius is on the throne. That is historical. The God outside of history enters history to make history his story. And that for me is just phenomenal. And then you just take just the the phenomenal of Jesus as a historical figure. He is undoubtedly the central figure of history. We even know that BC and AD, or if you want to uh, talk about it in modern terms, uh, common era and um, before common era, that is actually because of his date of birth. He never wrote a book. If if you know somebody wrote um, wrote an essay called "A Solitary Life," he never wrote a book. Yet more books have been written about him. He never commanded an army. Yet he commands the hearts of more than uh, millions of people. And, uh, you know, he never traveled more than a couple of kilometers from, from the place of his birth, yet thousands and millions of people have crossed over land and sea and air to spread his message of hope 
universally. I love uh, I love how you 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 brought that in after we talked about kind of the scientific, uh, logical, more moral spheres, and you're saying like this is evidence for uh, leaning towards there being a creator God, um, but really it rises and falls what Christianity is all about on the person of Jesus and uh, and the evidence of the resurrection is actually quite compelling. And, and that's where Christianity rises or falls. Um, the Apostle Paul even says, if he has not been raised, we are to be pitied above everybody, right? <laughs> but if he has yeah. been raised, if he has been raised, it, it, it truly is the most important story in human history. And uh, I'm, I'm, Raphael, I'm so glad that, uh, that Jesus grabbed a hold of your heart and uh, absolutely uh, stunned you with the gospel. Uh, thank you so much uh, for for sharing your passion in these areas, and uh, I know it, it it it's encouraged me today. That's for sure, and I know it'll encourage many listeners. So, thank you so much for your story and uh, and sharing these these beautiful truths with us. Matt, just before I go, if I could just say just two two last points. You know, I I, I talked about you know having the truth um, as being arrogant in in this in this modern era and being intolerant. And for me, it depends on what the truth is. Uh, what truth do you hold? Mm. And uh, what is the fundamental you hold? And is that an arrogant fundamental or is that a fundamental that leads you towards humility? And the fundamental we as Christians hold is to see other people as better than us. It's to see... Um, uh, to see God as the uh, the only rescuer of our souls. It's not based on our works. We serve a God who taught us to love our enemies, to pray yeah. for those who persecute us, and who forgave those uh, who were nailing him to a cross. And that is the fundamental that we hold on to. That is the truth that we hold to hold on to. It shows us that we are sinners. Yeah. And there's nothing arrogant about that. In fact, the truth should humble us. And just the last point I, I would like to make uh, is, you know, it's, it's from an analogy of uh, that N.T. Wright uses. And, you know, we spoke about different evidences uh, for God. And the way you can look at these evidences is uh, like, like lighting a candle. Uh, so you light a candle in a dark room and you head towards the curtain and you draw, you use these evidences, you use these facts like a candle in a dark room and it's used to draw open the curtain. And when you draw open the curtain, you bask in the radiance, in the warmth and the glory of the risen sun. These evidences are just uh, to give us a way to encounter the living Jesus Christ. And, uh, you know, I can say that, you know, I owe my wife as a doctor. I can read all her blood results. I can know everything about, can, you know, send her for an MRI, send her for a complex PET scan. And, 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 and I can read all about that, but I'll never get to know my wife. The only way you know, and the only way where you move from evidence to certainty is through relationships. 
And I just want to encourage your viewer uh, out there is uh, the best way to experience God is to taste and see that the Lord is good. Yes. Uh, Dr. Samuel, thanks so much for uh, your insights. And I feel like we need to get you out this way. You know, we can get you to Harrison Hot Springs. I hear you like that place. <laughs> yeah. Get and you to you share ever, with some of our people. Yeah. And if you, if you ever in Ontario, in uh, Hamilton, please come and have a meal with us. We'd love to, oh, uh, yeah. to have you. And please don't let this be the last time we talk. I enjoyed having this conversation with you. Sounds good. You're on. Thank you. Thanks, Matt. God bless. It's helpful to hear a guy like Raphael, with all of his life experience, education, and expertise, share about how Jesus first really captured his heart, and second, how he finds Christianity to be not only beautiful, but coherent and credible. If I'm ever near Hamilton, Ontario, Raphael invited me to come over to his place for a South African Indian curry. That just sounds amazing. I've got some family in Hamilton, so now I've got even more reason to get out there for a visit. Hey, we've got more episodes in the works, including a Q&A episode, so be sure to submit the questions you'd like answered on the future Deep Thoughts podcast episode to Deep Thoughts Instagram. Or email leadpastor at central365.org. Thanks for listening to Deep Thoughts. I hope it helps you in fostering deep faith.